to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 20, if you want to turn there. Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. We'll only be reading the first, or verse 17, 18, and 19 from Matthew chapter 20. And if you want to go ahead, you can be turning as well. Hold a finger there in Matthew. We'll also be reading from Luke chapter 18. And again, just a handful of verses there, verse 31 through 34. This is typically the time of year, of course, that we, we think about and celebrate the Lord's birth, and that's good. Uh, that is something we should do. We should remember the babe that came into the world, the son, the child that was given to us. But we also must remember why that child was born into the world. And the very common phrase of unto us a child is given. I pray that we also would remember the following phrase, that unto us a man has died. That child would grow. He would experience all the things in life that you and I experience. It's hard for us sometimes to think about. But Jesus grew up. He learned things as a man. The doctrine of the Incarnation teaches us that Jesus Christ was both all man and all God and all at the same time. And while there's part of that that we can only begin to think about and comprehend, we can understand what it means to be human. After all, we're all human. Jesus took upon himself this human form. He emptied himself in one respect of what he was in heaven, never changing his divinity and his deity, but taking upon himself the form of humanity. He was born into the world, and he was born into the world so that he could die for the world. And today, our church here, we are going to observe the Lord's Supper. And I want to direct your thoughts. I believe God wants to direct our thoughts together to how the Lord faced the cross. How the Lord faced the cross. How he faced death. How he faced the challenge of the cross. And so let's read verse 17 through 19 of Matthew chapter 20. It says, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to, to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. I want to read you the parallel recording of this in Luke chapter 18 as well, beginning in verse 31. And taking the twelve, he, that is Jesus, said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. 
and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. In the ESV translation, the title of this particular section of Scripture in Matthew is referred to as Jesus revealing and telling of his death. It says, Jesus foretells his death a third time. The third time that he had told them that this was going to happen. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, Jesus said, He began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Then again in Matthew chapter 17, verse 22, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. It is clear by a reading of the Gospels that Jesus was attempting to prepare his followers his disciples, his apostles, he was trying to prepare them for the day that he would face the cross. He did it again and again. He said it over and over. Much could be said about the day that Jesus went to the cross, but one thing that could not be said about it is that Jesus had not warned his followers that it was coming. Much like the day of judgment that will come one day, when Jesus returns in the clouds of glory, as the scriptures tell us. There'll be a lot of things that can be and will be said about that day, but what won't be able to be said about that day is that we weren't told that it was coming. For 4,000 years, I should say, the, the world was told that a Messiah was coming. A lot could be said about the day that Jesus was born. What cannot be said about it is that we were not told it was coming. And very similar way, Jesus, preparing his disciples, told them that this day was coming. Yet it also seems clear that they never really understood him on this point. Never really registered fully what he was saying. They understood the words, but it was almost like Jesus was speaking a different language. In Luke, we're told that it was hidden from them and All kinds of debate and thoughts have been had around whether God hid it from them or whether it was just something they didn't get. But either way, the point remains the same. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it. Though he said it plainly, he did not use words that were difficult to understand. It's clear that they didn't really understand him on this point. In fact, Luke, the 34th verse of the reading that we took just moments ago, said that very thing. They understood none of these things. They didn't get it. And we also think of Peter and John in the tomb that was empty. Their confusion, their disbelief of the women who said the tomb is empty. Well, Jesus had told them over and over again that that was what was going to happen, but they just didn't get it. In Matthew chapter 16, even when Peter did think he understood the words, When Jesus had told them in Matthew 16 that this day was coming and that the Son of Man would be turned over, that he would be crucified, Peter responded this way in verse 22 of chapter 16 in Matthew. He took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. 
I can't imagine rebuking the Son of God. But Peter began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. We might wonder at the misunderstanding of Jesus' disciples here. I know I have at times, as I've studied Scripture and read it, I've I've puzzled over their puzzlement. I've wondered, why didn't they ask him for greater clarity? Why didn't they understand better? Why didn't they see what Jesus was saying? It's so clear. As I thought about that, I, I, I wondered, though, I said, you know, thought to myself, it, it probably wasn't all that uncommon for them to respond to what Jesus said in a little bit of confusion. So many things that he would say that they might cock their head at and wonder just exactly what do you mean? Even the things that they would understand in some degree, I I bet there was always a bit of wondering of what precisely Jesus meant. Because in their minds, certainly, the idea that he would be delivered, that he would be betrayed, that he would be mocked and bit and beaten and spit upon and nailed to a cross and murdered in plain sight, this was something beyond their ability to accept. But it was true. Jesus was preparing them in advance for this day that was coming. He was also preparing them for after it as well. For afterward. Think of all the things that Jesus said in his earthly ministry that after his death, his crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection... Think of all the things that in the minds and the hearts of his followers all of a sudden started to make sense. All the things that he said. All of a sudden began to make sense. Not only all the things that Jesus said, but all of the things that the Old Testament prophets had said. Isaiah chapter 53. So many other places in Scripture where all of a sudden they begin to see that Jesus came to be the sacrifice for sin that man needs in order to find God and be restored to a right relationship with him. All of the prophecies of the Old Testament that began to fall perfectly into place after his death. And once their understanding was enlightened by experience, they would likely say to one another, this is what Jesus was talking about. I get it now. This is what he was teaching us. How many times have you heard somebody, by the way, who said that once they came to the Lord and they got saved and they would come to you and they'd say, now I get it. I understand what you were saying before. Before I understood the words. I had an idea of what you were trying to say. But I didn't get it. But now I do. I was blind, but now I see. That's a little bit about what's going on here. And I want us today, I believe God wants us today, to with as crystal clear a vision as we can to see how Jesus faced the cross. Not just obviously the cross, but his death. Because I believe that's what he commanded us to do when he gave us the instructions for how to observe the Lord's Supper. As oft as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. As oft as you do this, you show my death. As Jesus would tell his followers about this day that was coming, he knew all along that they didn't understand. He knew they didn't get it. He knew that, yet he told them anyway. 
How many times have parents told children things that they knew they weren't understanding yet? But one day they would, and so you tell them anyway. You know that, that they don't understand. So what I want to say to you today, first of all, how Jesus faced the cross, He faced it alone. He faced it alone. As He would share this truth about where He was going and what was going to happen to Him, His followers, His closest followers, they didn't get it. They didn't understand it. Even his closest friends and followers didn't understand what he was facing for them, what he was facing for his enemies, and what he was facing for an apathetic world. Facing his death would have been difficult enough with all that attained it and all that came with it, all the physical pain, all the humiliation that we'll talk about momentarily. That would have been bad enough. But had he at least had the support of friends who knew and understood, that would have provided some human comfort and some human confidence. But he faced it alone. And that he faced all that he faced at the cross and faced it alone. If you stop and you think about that for just a minute, it's almost beyond imagining. No one understood. No one could could commiserate with him. Talk to him and encourage him. No human being. Of course we know that his fellowship with the Father was sufficient and more than enough to carry through the day. Yet from his human side, his humanity, he was alone. No one went with him. All that he faced, he faced alone here. Every step of his life, and particularly every step of his three and a half year public ministry, was taken with people who never quite understood what he was about. Never really understood him. Never saw what he saw, all all that he understood. All this left him a man alone, even when surrounded by followers and even at times in great crowds. And he faced the cross alone. If ever there was a lonely man, it was Jesus Christ. I know that is a paradox because if ever there was a man who had closer, closest fellowship with God, it was Christ. But if there ever was a man lonely in terms of human companionship and comfort, it was Jesus Christ. Sometimes in our right view of Jesus as God, we forget Jesus as man. We forget that he felt what we would have felt. Alone, misunderstood, not even just misunderstood, just not understood. Jesus felt the full force of that loneliness that attended his death. His deity did not reduce that struggle. He faced human suffering as a human being. He understood what it was to be alone. So today... As we are gathered here, and as we intend to observe the Lord's Supper, we ought to remember that Jesus faced his death alone. There were no friends, no earthly friends to lighten his burden or defend his honor or reduce the pain. No one. He bore the full brunt of the wrath of man and the wrath of God, and he bore it alone. 
I've endured difficulties in my life. And there have been times where, in my estimation, there have been very, very few that understood. But I don't know that I've ever endured something where I felt like there was no one who understood. I remember as a boy feeling alone, but there was always my sister always there. There have been times in life when I have felt alone. In my adult life, there's always been my wife, my children, my church family. Maybe not many, but it's never been none that Jesus faced the cross alone. Again, is almost more than I can imagine. But it wasn't just alone. Jesus not only faced the cross alone, he faced it after a threefold betrayal. He faced the cross after a threefold betrayal, first by one of his own followers. We know this, Judas Iscariot. Verse 18 of what we read delivered over in Matthew chapter 20. See, we are going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And we know who that was. It was Judas. Jesus faced the cross after being betrayed by his own follower. The one who had walked with him like all the others. The one who had heard Jesus teaching firsthand had eaten of the fish and the bread that Jesus had blessed and fed the multitudes with. This man who had heard Jesus pray. This man who had seen Jesus heal leprosy, restore sight to the blind, and even raise the dead. This man would betray him, deliver him over to the Jews, to the chief priests and to the scribes. And yet, this man was one, and I want us to note this, that none of the other disciples or apostles or followers of Christ, when Jesus said this and spoke about this one who would betray him, none of them said, oh, that, that's Judas. Around the table at the Last Supper, when Jesus was uh, eating with his followers, with his apostles, he said, one of you is going to betray me. The people around, the others around the table that night said, oh, finally, finally, Judas, God is going to, the Lord is going to call you out. We've known all along, Judas, that you were a snake. Now it's time that you're going to get yours. We've known it from the beginning. That's not what they said. What did they say? Lord, is it me? Will I be the one? They did not look at Judas and say, well, certainly that is the one. Surely it's him. Now we've got you, Judas. Facing his death alone, again, would have been more nightmarish than any of us would ever want to experience. But to face it alone after being betrayed by one of your own followers, surely it just poured salt into the wound. And he knew all along that it was going to happen, I know. 
but he was betrayed. That's the first betrayal. The second betrayal, he's betrayed by his own people, the Jews, the chief priests and the scribes. Once he was delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, we're told there by Jesus that they then in turn would turn him over to the, to the Romans. Betrayed by his own people, the Jews. The chief priests and the scribes, the very people who ought to have seen all the prophetic uh, announcements about the Messiah fulfilled in Christ are the very people that are going to betray him and turn him over and deliver him to the Gentiles, to Pilate and to the Romans. The very people, by the way, that Jesus and the Father had chosen to be his people in the world. This is how Jesus faced the cross in part, betrayed by the very people that he had chosen with his father to be his representatives in the world. The very people whose ancestors God had delivered from Egyptian bondage, set up as a nation, prepared, prospered, and cared for and nourished, repeatedly chastised and corrected in the hope that they would turn and repent. These are the people that are betraying him. These are who he was betrayed by. His own people. His own children in one respect. And this thought occurred to me as I was studying and preparing. I want you to think about it. When Jesus stood across from Caiaphas and the others, the Sanhedrin, when he stood across from them, he knew them. He knew them. He knew the moment that they came into existence. He knew them better than they knew themselves, but not only that, as Jesus stood across from Caiaphas and those other Jews, I have to believe that in some respect, in his divinity and in his deity, he remembered their 54th great-grandfathers walking across the Red Sea on dry ground, eyes full of wonder and awe and amazement. And now he's standing in front of a generation, 54 generations later, betraying him to the Gentiles. He knew them. 1,500 years earlier, Jesus had delivered their very ancestors from Egyptian bondage. But Caiaphas, as he stood there on this very ground that God had given to him and to his people, Caiaphas, led, uh, led by anger and hatred, only looked upon Jesus with disdain, dismissal. This is how Jesus faced the cross. Betrayed by one of his own followers, betrayed by his own people. What a particular pain it must have caused him for that to be the case, I believe, both in his humanity and in his deity. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Betrayed by one of his own followers, betrayed by his own people, and third, Jesus faced the cross, betrayed by his own creation. Man. Represented here, in my estimation, by 
the Gentiles. Delivered over from by Judas to the Jews, delivered over by the Jews to the Gentiles to be flogged and to be crucified. Those who, according to Romans, had, at least in some respect, an inward awareness of the wrong that was being done, and yet they did it anyway. (coughs) There were signs all through the account of the crucifixion and the trial prior to it that people knew something was just, something wasn't right here. But they did it anyway. Pilate washes his hands in front of the people and says, I'm innocent of this man. Why would he do such a thing? Because he knew that something wasn't right here. This was all about political expediency. It was not about the truth. Because Jesus faced the cross, by the way, also innocently. No crime to be applied to him rightly. But he's betrayed by his own creation. The crowd, as they called for a criminal, Barabbas, release him. Crucify Jesus, this man who has done nothing wrong, this man who has only healed and brought goodness and has desired for the best for man and has come here to be our example and to be our sacrifice. People say, give us the criminal, take Jesus. Acts 2.23, Peter preaching to the large crowd that assembled there on the day of Pentecost. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Those, of, those who have studied Jewish law know that the whole trial itself was a, a farce. It was, not, it was not conducted legally. Yet Jesus is betrayed by them. And I want you to consider this in relation to Jesus and being betrayed by the Gentiles, as Jesus sat across from Pilate, having been delivered over to him, and ultimately to to the Gentiles, he was across from a man whom he had created. He looked at him, and like Caiaphas, he knew him. He knew him. He knew the moment he took his first breath. He knew the moment he would take his final breath. He knew everything that had happened to him up until that point in its most intimate detail. And he knew everything that was yet going to happen to him until he left this world. And I believe he knew what was going to happen for eternity with Pilate thereafter. And he looked at him and he knew all of these things. And he looked at him and he saw a man with a choice making the wrong yet inevitable choice. I believe he looked at Pilate like he looked at Adam with complete knowledge of all that would come from his sin. And yet he died for him anyway, because as Jesus looked at him, betrayed by him, as he looked at him, he saw a man he loved. He saw a man he loved, who was at that time betraying him, condemning him to crucifixion. This is how Jesus, thankfully, still looks upon man today. Lost, broken, separated, yet loved by the creator of the world. So again, today, as we remember the Lord's death, we ought to remember that Jesus not only faced his death alone, 
but he faced it having been betrayed by one of his own followers, by his own people, by his own creation. Third, Jesus faced his death willingly. And this is where I, I pray we, we can get some insight into what was going on in the Lord's mind as he went to the cross. Not only alone, not only betrayed, but he did all of that and he faced it willingly. As we have said, Jesus was all man and he was all God. As God, with a mere whisper, with a mere whisper, Jesus could have crushed all of his enemies, all of Jerusalem and all the world. That's the power that he contained and held. Yet he willingly submitted himself to those who had betrayed him and faced his death alone. Had Jesus not gone to the cross willingly, he would not have gone to the cross at all. No power on earth could put Jesus on the cross if he did not willingly go. And I want you to consider this for just a moment. If we can take something of a a side trail just briefly. We that have been saved, that know the Lord, that have been called and, and regenerated and made new, we are called to be like Him. It's why we're called to be Christian, like Christ. And the only way then that we can really do that is to exercise our own choice, our own free will. If we did not have free will, we could not submit like Christ did. We couldn't. It would be beyond our ability to do. And we could never be what we have been called to be. Like Christ, our free will must be submitted to God in order for it to operate correctly. But it is something we have been given. A free will that is used to turn away from God is a free will that is in rebellion to the ultimate sovereign to whom it is accountable, which is God. Jesus faced the cross Willingly, he chose to go there because of his love for his father and love for the world. It's clear to me that we have been created in that likeness and in that image, yet it has been granted to us by the one who is ultimately sovereign over all things. So the question isn't really, do we have free will? Do we possess it? The question is, how are you using it? How are you exercising it? In Romans and in many other places in the New Testament, God, the Lord's followers are called to pick up their cross. To pick up their cross and follow him. And recalling that, that Jesus has called his followers to do just that to pick up their cross and follow him as we remember Jesus' own cross-bearing today, I had to ask myself the question, how's my personal cross-bearing going? I ask you, how is your personal cross-bearing going? Jesus' cross was not the convenient thing. And yours won't be either. Jesus' cross was not the popular thing. Yours won't be either. 
Jesus' cross was not the easy thing, yours won't be either. Jesus' cross was despised by the world and ours will be too. Jesus had to willingly bear his cross and so too will you. Like Jesus, if you do not willingly bear your cross, you will not bear it at all. Because God does not force. I believe in the sovereignty of God Almighty. There's nothing that would shake me from that certainty. But I also believe God has created you in such a way that he says choose. And you'll be accountable for that choice. But he does not force. And like Jesus, if you do not willingly bear your cross, you will not bear it at all. There has never been a cross carried by a Christian that was carried against their will. And you and I will not be the first to do so. So that cross you have been asked to bear in your life. I don't know what it is for you. That cross may be that you've been unwilling to carry. I want you to think about Jesus and how he faced the cross willingly. And as you look at the cross that maybe you are being asked to carry in your life, and you say, I just can't, maybe the weight isn't the problem. Maybe the pain that it causes you as you pick it up and carry it, maybe that's not the problem. Maybe you're standing still in your Christian walk, not because the cross is too heavy, not because it's too painful but because you're simply unwilling. Maybe you're standing still because you're unwilling to bow onto the ground and pray to God to give you the strength to pick it up. May our remembrance today of the Lord's willingness to bear His cross, which was far heavier and far more painful than our own, make us and encourage us to a willingness to bend down, pick it up, and carry it from now until the day he calls to us and tells us to set down our cross and come on home. That's what Jesus did. He willingly chose this path. And Hebrews tells us for the joy that was set before him. And his joy was not here. It was there. That's what he was looking to. He faced the cross willingly. He faced the cross and his death courageously. Next. It's not just death that he faced. It was a cruel, painful, shameful death. The scripture here, Jesus tells us he's going to be mocked. They're not going to just put a needle in his arm and he's not going to just go to sleep and die. He's going to be mocked. It's difficult for us to fully appreciate the shame of Jesus' death. We can imagine the physical pain, but the shame appears to be the worst of it for the Lord. In Hebrews 12, 2, telling us as we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, Endured the cross, 
despising the shame. Here was the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Master of everything, being mocked by those far, far below him. Matthew 27, verses 28, listen to what they did. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. Stripped naked before all, the one who clothes the world in righteousness and covers the shame of our nakedness is stripped before all. And they struck him on the head with the reed. And I thought about that for a moment. And I did some reading and children in Jewish society were struck with a reed for correction. This striking of Jesus on the head with a reed was meant to embarrass him as much or more than to cause or inflict pain. To belittle him. To treat him as a child. Again, the king of kings. The son of the father. Criminals were flogged. Children were struck with reeds. And in striking him again on the head, we see the full degree of the mockery that Jesus endured. So the one who brings dignity and honor to humanity is mocked and belittled and ridiculed. That's how Jesus faced his cross with dignity and with courage in the midst of all of that. Flogged, of course, we know, whipping, the repeated lashing of the back that violently tore the skin caused terrible bleeding. Again and again, the blows struck his back and in merciless secession, causing physical agony words cannot fully express. Yet he faced it courageously. He did not face this day weakly. There's never been a man who showed more courage than our Lord on this day. To remain silent. To go to this cross, this death that he had chosen, that no one was forcing him to. He could have in a moment said, all right, Father, that's enough. Send the angels. I'm finished. But looking across at Pilate and he saw that man that he loved and he knew without his death that all that him and all of the rest of the world, you and me would have no hope. And he endured it. This flogging. The one who knew the glory of the angels bowing down to him and his father in his throne in heaven now knows the pain of the whip across his open and bleeding back. He came to remove man's pain And man simply gave him pain in return. Mocked, flogged, and of course ultimately crucified. The crucifixion was the death penalty for only only the worst of criminals. You, You know this, no doubt already. Jesus' death was not a dignified death. Not in the eyes of man. There was nothing. Nothing about this scene outwardly that was appealing. It was ugly. The sights and sounds of that day would likely be more than our modern day sensibilities could stand. 
And Jesus was treated like a criminal, and most looking on saw just another criminal facing his due reward for his criminal behavior. That's what most saw. So here we have a man innocent of all crimes being treated as though he were guilty of the worst of them. And yet Jesus faced it alone. He faced it having been betrayed. He faced it willingly. And he faced it with courage that is hard to describe. The greatest of courage. Finally today, Jesus faced his death calling upon his followers to remember it. He told us to remember it, to never forget it. It's really quite something to me to think that you can be 20 years old and know nothing about 9-11. That day that changed everything for those of us alive at the time. And how soon we forget. By how soon we forget. Jesus faced his death calling upon us as his followers to never forget it. Three times he told them it was going to happen. At the Last Supper with his disciples, he gives us the second of two ordinances that we believe we are to observe. Which he says again is designed for us to remember his death and to show it to the world. I want you to note something in Luke's gospel. It's one of the reasons I wanted to read it there as well. 31 through 34, Jesus foretelling his death a third time. The very next section of scripture talks about Jesus healing a blind beggar. Right into that. That's where Luke goes next. I don't want to stretch the scripture or place meaning where there is none, but I, I could not help but notice that. I could not help but see that possible connection there. The world, the world is full of blind beggars who need to see Christ and his death on the cross for man. You and I, as followers of Christ, we are to show them the Lord's death as we partake in this ordinance and as we live our lives. We are to remember how Jesus faced the cross alone, betrayed, courageous, willing, and calling upon us to remember. He's calling out to you and to me today. If we are his followers as well, he looks to you and he looks to me and he says to us, do this in remembrance of me, of what I did for you. The home I am preparing that I have made possible through my death. I faced it. And he looks at us and he says, I know, I know the cross is heavy. Oh, I know, he says. Oh, I know. I know the burdens of this life. I know them. But one day you're going to get to set it down. And I can't wait for that day. When Jesus says, set it down, come on over. 
And I pray that when that day comes for me, whether it comes when he returns or whether he calls me out of this life, oh, I pray, I so pray that he'll tell me to set it down because I'm holding it. I'm carrying it and it's heavy and it hurts. But people need to see what the real cross is, which is Jesus on his cross dying for them and for you and for me and for all the world. I carry this cross because my master did. He died for you. This is what he did for you. And he did it so that you can have eternal home with him in heaven. And not be left behind and left out, but brought in. I so pray that the Lord would work and encourage us with an awareness of how Jesus faced the cross so that we can remember him as he has called us to. We can love him and honor him and obey him. We would submit to him. And I don't know why I feel like saying this, but it's something that God has really brought to my mind. I almost, I said it the other day, it's just, it's just stuck with me. And I said it almost before I understood fully what I said. Sometimes fighting for the Lord is easier than submitting to the Lord. Sometimes trying to do the right thing is easier than just submitting. And if the things in our life that we're fighting for is not from a submission to him, then the fight's probably being conducted wrong and may not even be the right one anyway. Jesus chose this path. This is what he's called us to do. Remember him. Show him. I pray that the Lord would help us to do just that. This afternoon, we...